Welcome to Legal Ethics in the News, a podcast series from the New York City Bar Association featuring Stephen Gillers and Barbara S. Gillers discussing legal ethics issues making headlines in the legal or mainstream media. Stephen is the Hallahu Root Professor of Law, and Barbara is an adjunct professor of law both at New York University School of Law. In this episode, what rules govern a law firm's ancillary business? And law practice in the metaverse, new developments. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here are Barbara Gillers and Stephen Gillers. Hi, I'm Barbara Gillers. I'm Stephen Gillers. This is our podcast, Legal Ethics in the News. Every few weeks, we'll discuss current legal ethics issues in the news. The issues may come from a bar ethics opinion, a court case, a story in the legal or popular press, or a suggestion from you. You can send suggestions to this address, legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. And we'll post some of the sources we mention in our podcast or citations to them on the City Bar site accompanying the podcast. You can also get our podcasts wherever you get your other podcasts, like Google, Spotify, Apple, or elsewhere. In, in this, our 15th podcast, we first discuss a recent New York State bar ethics opinion, and more broadly, how lawyers might earn money by offering clients services separate from legal services and the rules governing such arrangements. Then, in part two, we discuss a new development in what we've been calling the practice of law in the metaverse. Depending on the nature of a firm's practice, a law client may need advice connected to its need for legal services, but the advice may not be legal advice, and non-lawyers may also be able to provide it. Yeah, for example, a client planning her estate or who has received a large money judgment might need investment advice. A real estate client <laughs> may, may need an inspection of property she is considering buying or, or brokerage services for a property she wants to sell. Yeah, and as part of a contract for a new office space, a client might need internet technology assistance or even design advice. Corporate clients may be in the market for human resource, marketing, and management advice. I got another one. Clients of all kinds might require the help of an investigative agency. We could go on. The overall category has sometimes been called ancillary legal services. So uh, we should define ancillary, which means to distinguish the situation we're describing from one where a lawyer's or firm's other business has nothing to do with law practice. For example, some lawyers in a firm may have an ownership interest in, for example, a travel agency. Or a restaurant. ABA Model Rule 5.7 defines such law-related services as, quote, services that might reasonably be performed in conjunction with and in substance are related to the provision of legal services, 
and that are not prohibited as unauthorized practice of law when provided by a non-lawyer. Ordinarily, these services might also be offered from within a law firm. But a firm may choose not to do so. Perhaps the owners of the non-legal service provider will include non-lawyers or fewer than all of the firm's lawyer owners. So a separate entity is needed or required. There may be tax reasons, whatever. So in New York State Bar Opinion 1231, a firm provided estate planning services, and that might include the creation of trusts as part of the estate plan. These are, of course, legal services. But the trustees might then be responsible for managing the trust assets. They might ask if the law firm could provide help there as well. In the opinion, the inquirer envisioned creating a separate financial management company to do that. Clients could choose to retain that company or not once the trust was created. The fact that firm lawyers or some of them owned the company would be fully disclosed to the client. So here we have a firm providing estate planning, which might include creation of trusts. Some of the firm lawyers would also own a financial management company. The trustees under the estate plan could then choose to retain the company for financial advice. Three rules govern arrangement like these. Rule 1.7A2 and B, Rule 1.8A, and Rule 5.7. The analysis would be similar under the New York rules as under the ABA model rules, despite some, some differences in language. Of course, we should point out that any lawyer in a similar situation should read the versions of these rules in the jurisdiction whose rules apply. Rule 1.7 and 1.8a, which are conflict rules, apply whether the service occurs within the law firm or via a distinct entity. Rule 5.7 applies when the service is performed through a distinct entity, not the firm. Let's start with model rule 1.7. It describes what a lawyer must do if her interests conflict with a client's interests. The lawyer must get informed consent confirmed in writing if, quote, there is a significant risk that the representation will be materially limited by a personal interest of the lawyer. New York Rule 1.7 is worded somewhat differently, but we think the conclusion would be the same as under the model rule. Opinion 1231 concludes that a lawyer in this situation has a conflict requiring informed consent because at the time the firm is preparing the estate plan, it has an interest in including a trust, which its financial management entity could then seek to advise. 
Yeah, and maybe a trust is not in the client's best interest. The opinion says, quote, if the lawyer intends to recommend the financial management company in which the lawyer has an interest, then the lawyer's advice regarding whether to establish a trust for estate and tax planning purposes, as opposed to pursuing an alternative course, may be adversely affected by the lawyer's interest in the company being retained to manage funds that the client transfers into the trust. And the client must be so informed. It was important to the opinion's conflict analysis that the decision whether to include a trust in the state state plan uh, and the decision whether to hire the financial management company to advise on any such trust would occur sequentially, not simultaneously. Yeah, that is, only after the trust was created would the trustees be in a position to decide on what, if any, advice they needed and from whom. The opinion goes on to say that such a situation, quote, is different from one where the legal and financial advice are given simultaneously and intertwined, such as where the lawyer simultaneously gives legal advice about what financial product to purchase and seeks to sell that same product to the client, close quote. Then the conflict would not be consentable because the client would be relying on the firm's legal advice whether to create a trust at the same time that it would be deciding whether to hire the firm's financial management company for the trust. Timing is the critical distinction in the view of the opinion. We see the same distinction elsewhere. A common example of an unconsentable conflict is when a lawyer is representing the buyer or seller of real property while also serving as the client's broker. When the lawyer representing a buyer tells her client that a cloud on the title is no big deal, was it because of the brokerage fee the lawyer stood to earn if the sale occurred? Much bigger, perhaps, than her legal fee? Or because it was the advice of a disinterested lawyer? Or... When the lawyer for a seller tells a client to reduce her price following what the buyer claims were problems revealed in an inspection report. So, again, was the lawyer motivated by the fee he would receive on the sale rather than an objective assessment of the accuracy of the inspection report? Simultaneous representations of buyers or sellers of real property while also serving as the broker for the properties is generally understood to raise unconsentable conflicts. So next we come to Rule 1.8a, whether or not the ancillary service is offered in-house or through a distinct vehicle, the firm must also comply with 1.8a which governs a business transaction with a client. Or indeed, under the language of the model rule, whenever a lawyer, quote, knowingly acquires an ownership, 
possessory, security, or other pecuniary interest adverse to a client, close quote. Rule 1.8a contains strict disclosure and writing requirements in those situations. But Rule 1.8a will only apply when the financial arrangement is with a client or former client. The trustees may be in that position if they or or some of them included the personal persons on whose behalf the firm was preparing the estate plan. And the rule could apply to deals with former clients too, at least recent ones, because they may reasonably believe that their former lawyer has their best interests in mind. Last, we come to Rule 5.7, which is relevant if the non-legal services is service is not offered through the law firm, but through a distinct business. If the non-legal services are offered through the firm itself, then the professional conduct rules apply to that work. Rule 5.7 isn't involved at all. The problem here is that a client who uses her lawyer's non-legal business may not know that the business does not have the same professional obligations to her as her lawyer has when performing legal services. After all, the work may be done by some of the same people who do the legal work and from the same location. If the client could reasonably conclude that the firm has the same duties to her in providing the non-legal services as when it provides legal services, the firm has the same professional obligations to the client, even though the work is non-legal, unless the firm informs the client otherwise. In fact, the New York Rule 5.7 creates a presumption in favor of the client. It states that, quote, it will be presumed that the person receiving non-legal services believes the services to be the subject of a client-lawyer relationship unless the lawyer or law firm has advised the person receiving the services in writing that the services are not legal services and that the protection of a client-lawyer relationship does not exist with respect to the non-legal services, end quote. There is an exception if, quote, the interest of the lawyer or law firm in the entity providing non-legal services is de minimis, end quote. And New York requires that this advice be in writing, but to be safe, a lawyer should always have a writing to avoid any inference that the client was not informed. We now, we now turn to recent developments in the practice of law in the metaverse. For more than 20 years, the profession has been trying to come to grips with two contradictory forces. Con- contradictory in the sense that expansion of one usually comes at the expense of the other. Traditionally, lawyers were permitted to practice only in the jurisdiction that licensed them. So, a New York lawyer could not practice law in Ohio and vice versa. 
This arrangement mostly worked well or was at least tolerable through, say, 1970. But then, increasingly, client problems required lawyers to cross state borders. At the same time, law firms were expanding nationally or internationally. So we had a sort of clash, which we tried to ignore, because the reality of our legal economy, which does not recognize borders, and our licensing system, which is based on borders. This clash became exponentially more acute with the appearance of the internet, because now lawyers could more easily practice nationally without leaving home. Or even, as we have learned during the pandemic, without ever going to the office. They had access to their files, their firm colleagues, their clients, support staff, and a vast law library, all from their kitchens or dens or while on a prolonged vacation. But some of these remote locations might not be in a jurisdiction in which a lawyer was admitted. Consider a California lawyer who moves to her ski house in Idaho for a year. ABA Opinion 495 says that working from Idaho for home state clients would not violate the ABA's model rules so long as she was professionally invisible in Idaho. But the opinion took no position on whether it would be unauthorized law practice, which is a legal, not an ethical question. In the 1990s, when lawyers began more often to cross borders, it wasn't discipline they had to fear so much as loss of fees. Because, court said, presence, physical or virtual, outside the lawyer's home jurisdiction was unauthorized law practice. See the Beerbrower and Servadone cases cited in the material accompanying this podcast where fees were lost in whole or in part. Clients could avoid paying the fee even if the lawyer's performance was fine and even if the client knew where the lawyer was and was not licensed. Because, courts said, the unauthorized practice of law violated public policy. So it didn't matter what the client knew or how the lawyer performed. This was not about the client or fairness between the lawyer and the client, courts say. It was about public policy. And so it was, and still is, correct to say that a lawyer may be guilty of unauthorized practice in a jurisdiction in which she is not admitted if her presence in that jurisdiction violates its unauthorized practice rules. And the presence does not have to be physical. It can be virtual. A New York lawyer can be guilty of unauthorized law practice in Tennessee without ever entering Tennessee except virtually through phone, fax, email, Zoom, FaceTime, or technology yet to come. Obviously, this would not work. The profession needed to make at least some cross-border practice, physically or virtually, safe for lawyers. In the same decades that all this was happening, more lawyers developed specialties in narrow but complex areas of practice. Their local client base may have grown smaller because of their specialty, 
But the geographical area from which they got clients expanded. And further, the laws of various jurisdictions were becoming more alike and differences easier to discover. Of course, federal and international law is the same everywhere. A copyright expert is a copyright in, expert in Illinois, where she's licensed, and also in Indiana, where she is not. If an Indiana publisher seeks to retain her, can she agree? Can she meet with the publisher in Indianapolis, or, or does she have to require the client to come to Chicago? Can she advise the publisher only virtually between Chicago and Indianapolis? Well, as we said, something had to be done and something was done. Yep. In 2003, the ABA amended Rule 5.5 of the model rules to provide limited but generous authority for lawyers to practice outside their place of admission. Informally, these are called safe harbors. Today, every state has adopted safe harbors for out-of-state lawyers, usually but not always identical to those the ABA approved. Mostly, they're through amendments to Rule 5.5, but in New York and in California, they are in the rules of the top courts. The safe harbors, harbors permit only temporary practice in the state, but the comments to the rule define temporary pretty broadly. Rule 5.5 as amended also permits an out-of-state lawyer's permanent presence in the state in limited circumstances, such as lawyers whose client is a federal agency or in-house lawyers. And amendments have extended some protection to lawyers admitted only in other nations. All of this is beneficial, of course, but is it really enough? Arizona thought not. Its state Supreme Court and the courts in a few other states to varying degrees have agreed with Arizona. Arizona's rules may seem revolutionary when compared to most of America, but tame when compared to Canada's National Mobility Agreement, which makes it easier to practice in or even relocate to a new province. Tame also compared to the ability of European Union lawyers to relocate to new countries. Is Arizona where the nation is headed? Who knows? But for the moment, efforts to reconcile law as practiced and the geographical boundaries of a law license are limited to a series of patchwork repairs. And one wonders how long a patchwork solution can work. So now that we've identified the Arizona revolution, what exactly has the state done? Its version of Rule 5.5 permits a lawyer admitted in any U.S. or foreign jurisdiction to open a law office in Arizona and advise on the law of any jurisdiction in the world if competent to do so, but not on the law of Arizona. Mm, Yeah. Specifically, Arizona Rule 5.5D says, quote, a lawyer admitted in another United States jurisdiction 
or a lawyer admitted in a jurisdiction outside the United States, not barred or suspended from practice in any jurisdiction, may provide legal services in Arizona that exclusively involve federal law, the law of another jurisdiction, or tribal law, end quote. Other provisions of the rules say that the lawyer, quote, must advise the lawyer's client that the lawyer is not admitted to practice in Arizona and must obtain the client's informed consent to such representation, end quote. Also, the lawyer cannot appear in state tribunals without pro hoc vice approval. And the lawyer must comply with the state's professional conduct rules. Of course, Arizona's sanctions cannot include suspension or disbarment because the lawyer is not admitted in the state. But Arizona can ban the lawyer from practice in Arizona under its rule and can refer the lawyer for discipline in his or her home state. Some other states, including Minnesota, Ohio, and North Carolina, grant similar but narrower authority. For example, the North Carolina rules limit the out-of-state lawyer who opens an office in the state to, quote, providing services limited to federal law, international law, the law of a foreign jurisdiction, or the law of the jurisdiction in which the lawyer is admitted to practice, end quote. So Arizona would allow a Montana or a French lawyer to advise on New York law in Arizona, even if she is not admitted in New York, but North Carolina would not. You may wonder, well, why not let the relocating lawyer advise on Arizona law too? Why not say that a lawyer admitted anywhere can practice any law from an office anywhere? That would resemble motion admission, but without the need for a motion. Or like a driver's license from one state that is readily recognized in another state. Some states may see this as economically threatening. Most obviously, Florida. Florida would fear a snowbird invasion. Today, Florida doesn't even recognize motion admission. And New York and California might resist on the ground that they have a harder bar exam and a lower passage rate than some places where the passage rate is nearly 100%. Yet the driver's license proposal would allow a lawyer in an easy passage state to open an office in a difficult state immediately on getting his or her license. We doubt that the nation is ready to treat a bar license like a driver's license. Given the the glacial pace at which new bar regulations are adopted, most places anyway, the Arizona rule has not yet been broadly adopted. The final chapter at the moment in this ongoing tale about the geographical limits on law licenses is a proposal from the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, also called APRIL, The text of the proposal and the supporting memo is at the address on the material accompanying this podcast. April's members represent lawyers in discipline and civil action, 
advise lawyers on their duties under professional conduct and other rules, and testify as experts. So let's talk about what the April proposal says. It is truly revolutionary, in many ways going beyond Arizona. It is much like the Arizona rule, except that it would allow lawyers admitted anywhere in the U.S. to open an office anywhere and advise on any law, including local law. So Arizona's rule forbids advising on Arizona law, but the April rule would allow even that. This is much more generous than motion admission. A relocating lawyer would not even need to apply for admission in the new state. Which can take many months. The lawyer could start representing Arizona clients on the day she arrives. Or even before she arrives. One big question is whether the ABA will take April's proposed rules seriously. A second question is whether it would be then willing to support it or something like it. We won't know the answers to these questions for quite some time. And as we say, change happens slowly in the profession. It it would seem that a lawyer with a physical office in a different state can open a law office virtually in Arizona and seek Arizona clients so long as she complies with the state rule. Right. Nothing in the rule itself purports to require a physical office in the state. Whereas the conventional wisdom has been and still is that whether or not practice is unauthorized depends where the lawyer works. But the challengers to that model mean to dispense with the words, quote, words, sorry, where location has little or no meaning in this new world. The world Arizona has opened up says that what matters is competence, so long as the law is not Arizona law. And the April proposal would even do away with the prohibition of advice on Arizona law. So where does all this leave us? Well, as Tevya said in Fiddler on the Roof, it's a new world, Goldie. Can we say the same? Not not quite yet. But the trend is in the direction of facilitating cross-border practice. And although progress, if that's what it is, will be characterized by fits and starts, we doubt that it will reverse. That's our podcast for today. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find citations and other materials mentioned in this podcast at the program's page at nycbar.org slash podcasts. Have you seen or heard a topic in the news that you think the Gillers should consider covering? Email legalethicspodcast at nycbar.org. The Gillers do not provide ethics advice to individual lawyers. 
Lawyers admitted to practice in New York with a question about their own prospective conduct under the New York rules may receive informational guidance by calling the City Bar's Ethics Hotline at 212-382-6663. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was recorded on May 19th, 2022 and produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.